Welcome to the Not Old Better Show. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and this is episode number 487. As part of our Smithsonian Associates Earth Optimism interview series, our guest today is Leanna Vitale. Leanna Vitale is a biologist and zoologist at Jug Bay Wetland Sanctuary. You will hear this loud and clear throughout our conversation today, but Leanna Vitale believes wholeheartedly in the power of nature to foster profound experiences in each of us that can serve to unlock our potential and our authentic selves. I love that. Leanna Vitale will be presenting at the Smithsonian Associates event October 21st, and we'll have links and details to her presentation on our website. Today, we'll be talking to Leanna Vitale, naturalist and educator at Jug Bay Wetlands Sanctuary, who will be offering us some tips, facts, and resources for those of us who are dedicated birders and for those of us who are birding beginners like me. Leanna Vitale will also share findings from over 20 years of avian research at the sanctuary, including insights into migratory behaviors, as well as a few phenomena that have left even the experts puzzled. You got to check this out. Jug Bay Wetland Sanctuary is just 12 miles outside of D.C., and it is the jewel on the Patuxent River. If you live near Jug Bay, if you're going to be visiting the D.C. area, you got to check out the beauty of Jug Bay. I've been to Jug Bay several times and will be going again soon. But in the meantime, please welcome Leanna Vitale today via internet phone. Leanna Vitale, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. You know, this, uh, selfishly, I'll tell you right up front, this, this is going to be uh, just a great, great program. I'm, I'm so excited to talk to you about Jug Bay. We're going to get into that. We're going to get into Jug Bay Wetland Sanctuary. But you're going to be on Zoom for the Smithsonian Associates presentation. And I wonder if you'd tell us a little bit about your upcoming presentation and, and how you think Zoom's going to work for you there. Yeah, absolutely. So when I first presented to the Smithsonian Associates this past May, I shared as many personal tips and secrets I had for backyard birding during COVID. And so with nearly all of our sports and reality TV shows canceled for some of us, I think the bird feeder became maybe one of the most dramatic and entertaining <laughs> options that keep <laughs> us great. occupied while we were staring out the window between bouts of feverishly washing our hands and life pulling our lives. And so I shared these tricks that I've learned over the years on bird feeder styles and seeds, where to start with planting a bird friendly garden. I mean, if we haven't been baking over the last five months, we've been gardening for sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. And really any outdoor space can be bird friendly patios and um, large acre lands and really small spaces. And I kind of gave my own personal like hacking guide to becoming an amateur birder and uh, a little bit of a guide to some of the most common North American birds. Spoiler alert, it's the Northern Cardinal. It's everywhere. Mm-hmm. That's your gateway bird to get you into birding. <laughs> uh, so for this presentation with the Smithsonian, um, they asked if I'd be willing to do more of a deeper dive into the rich 30-year history of avian research here at Jug Bay Wetland Sanctuary. And we're a 1,700-acre nature preserve about 12 miles Southeast of Washington, D.C., forgive the phrase, as a crow flies. It's appropriate, I think, for this. <laughs> that's, good. that's good. I like it. <laughs> and I'm a sucker for a good story. Oh, and yeah. I prefer, yeah, I prefer eye-catching visuals to text. So what I hope to do with, with Zoom with this opportunity is to exploit every possible asset of Zoom technology to recreate the experience of being here at Joke Bay Wetland Sanctuary for many that, that couldn't be here over the last several months or who still need to stay home. 
And I want to recreate that in a digital experience that immerses our participants in the sights and sounds of all things birds at Jug Bay. I think this is going to be exciting. This will be a lot of fun. And again, um, I hate to go here, but I, I will for just a moment and tell you that I've been to Jug Bay Wetlands Sanctuary a couple of times. As a matter of fact, my wife and I love it. And we're very, very amateurish in terms of the birding experience. But maybe for our audience who've not been to the Jug Bay Wetlands Sanctuary, tell us about that location just south of D.C. It is beautiful and um, mm. there's so much there to enjoy, including the fact that it's a nationally important bird area and mm-hmm. you're going to you're going to play a mockingbird call for us and we'll listen to that uh, right now as a matter of fact I just think that mockingbird call is so beautiful. So, so tell us a little bit about the nationally important bird area, Jug Bay Wetlands Sanctuary, and what's it all about? And gosh, what's not to love there? It is gorgeous. <laughs> uh, yes, you're speaking to my heart. It's it it is it's a still a kind of pinch yourself moment when you arrive to work at a sanctuary. And honestly, Jug Bay really is just stunning. I'm. I'm embarrassed to say that I lived within 45 minutes of Jug Bay for 10 years before I ever visited. Hmm. And actually my first day I visited was my first day on the job. I don't recommend that. I definitely recommend going to where you're going to work <laughs> before your first day. But I rolled the dice on that one and lucked out pretty well. We have 11 different habitat types here from swamps to streams, meadows to marshes. We even have a micro desert and a micro pine forest. But True to our namesake, though, I think the most beautiful landscape within the sanctuary is our tidal freshwater marsh, the extent and health of which is actually rare in in the country and and even in the world these days. We're actually nationally recognized as a national estuarine research reserve, and we're one of 29 in the entire country. And even footage of our adorable marbled salamanders has been incorporated into BBC wildlife documentaries Hmm. narrated by Sir David Attenborough. Yeah, so Jug Bay is like is still a remarkable but little-known gem in the natural world, and we wrestle with that every day here. We mm-hmm. want to make everything that we have available to the world because we feel that's how you make that connection. But we balance that. My own kind of personal ethos about the sanctuary is that it doesn't exist for the humans before the animals, and so the sanctuary is is for the wildlife, and they just let us come in every now and then and hang out with them. <laughs> We're celebrating our 35th year as a sanctuary, actually, and it's proving that there's some silver linings in 2020 if you find them. Mm-hmm. 35 years of protection and conservation and restoration. And most people don't know this, but the formation of Jug Bay was catalyzed in part by the Maryland Renaissance Festival. And jousting is the state sport of Maryland. So it makes sense <laughs> that it could be in a place like Jug Bay with big meadows and open spaces, but it's actually settled in Crownsville, Maryland right now, but Jug Bay. 35 years ago was in strong consideration and a small local group of citizens banded together to make the strong case for the preservation of the Jug Bay natural area. Mm. And they won. Mm. So in 1985, the first 160 acres were born here as a County park. And over the years, our land conservation acreage has increased 900%. And 
Yeah, and that small group of local citizens, well, they created the Friends of Jug Bay, mm-hmm. and they're an affiliated nonprofit group. And though they're small, they are mighty. And at one point over the last 35 years, they actually took on the Target Corporation wow. in a fight for 30 acres of land Yeah, nearby that contains vital headwater creek habitat. And they won that too. So you mentioned, asked about the National Audubon uh, important bird area. Mm-hmm. So we have over 300 species of birds that have been observed in a single year here at Jug Bay. And we earned the Audubon Important Bird Area designation specifically for our breeding populations of a special bird called the least bittern. It's a species in the heron family of birds. It's not, it's small. It's not nearly as big as a great blue heron, but it's wonderfully important for the ecosystem. It's a species listed by Maryland Department of Natural Resources as in need of conservation. And it's actually thought that Jug Bay may host the largest breeding population in America. Wow. And yeah, when it comes to large populations of birds, for example, we we can have birds in the tens of thousands in a single day during the winter waterfowl period between November and April. And you'll see migratory Canada geese by the hundreds and thousands, mallards, black ducks, pintails. We even have a nice healthy population of green-winged teals. And so that'll be part of my talk as well as sharing these stories of rare and exceptional special bird visitors that we've had over the years, even in the heart of winter. And I start to work on identifying birds um, over time. Seeing them is a great way to start, but then hearing them is really mm-hmm. helpful. Mm-hmm. And that mockingbird we played in the beginning of mm-hmm. this, mm-hmm. Um, one of those that'll totally throw you off though. So in that call, there was actually one bird impersonating five different songs of five different birds. Hmm. And if you listen to it, um, you might play it, uh, you know, you might repeat it on this podcast mm-hmm, mm-hmm. as you re-listen to it. And yeah. you might hear that there's a Carolina wren, there's a blue jay, a wood thrush, a robin, a tufted titmouse. And it's just going through its greatest personal hits record <laughs> of the different calls that it has. And it can actually impersonate many more calls than that. And I can think of one night camping at Jug Bay this past summer after a mini bio blitz. It was two in the morning and us biologists were headed back to our tents. And just as I was laying my head down on my pillow, this beautiful, blissful silence of the night was terribly interrupted by a mockingbird who decided at 2 a.m. at that time was the perfect time to practice his entire repertoire of stolen songs. <laughs> All of them that he knew. I love and it. At first, I was really annoyed, and I wondered how far I'd have to throw my boots up on my tent to kind of knock him off his high perch. But instead, I decided to count how many different mimic songs I could hear before I huh. fell asleep, mm-hmm. and I got to 20. Wow. Wow. That's one intelligent bird. Yeah, we, we of course, are playing the Mockingbird call here again. We're We're not, as I mentioned, my wife and I are not dedicated birders. My wife very much... It loves the bird varieties uh, at Jug Bay and and even in kind of the uh, Virginia, Maryland, D.C. area. We in our backyard, we we have several bird feeders. We have had a Cooper's hawk uh, in the in the yard. Um, my wow. wife is able to actually take a grub worm, put it in the palm of her hand and have a Carolina wren light on her hand and then eat the grub worm out of her hand. And then we have had probably over the years, we've probably had 10 different families of the wren. And you talk about, you know, their call. It is such a 
it's such a noisy call too. It just it wakes <laughs> us up. But I know the varieties of birds at Jug Bay are beautiful and Cooper's hawks are there. What tips yeah. and resources can you offer our audience about kind of some novice birding? You know, in particular, do do we need really super high power binoculars for for birding there at Jug Bay, or can we get by with something else? Just tell us a little bit about what you suggest. Yeah, you, you definitely don't need the top of the line super high powered binoculars. They're nice, of course, but you you don't need them to really start your journey into birding. Um, you do want a pair of binoculars that are going to balance the ratio of magnification to lugness. That's my term for the weight of binoculars. You're willing to lug around your neck into the woods. And that's a very important quality for me to consider when you're carrying things out there on the trail. So um, I have personally have a pair of Celestron 8x42s. And uh, I often get asked what those numbers actually mean. So the first number, the eight, that refers to the strength of the magnification. Or in other words, how many times closer the subject you're looking at is to you. So for me, with those binoculars, the birds are eight times closer to me than they are in real life. Hmm. And that second number, the 42, that's the length of the lens that's measured in millimeters across the front of the binoculars. And it determines how much light the binocular will filter into your eye. And the higher the number, the greater the light passing through, projecting a brighter image. But also, typically, greater millimeter number equals greater lugness. Hmm. So think about, you know, that those vertebrae in the back of your neck and mm-hmm. value that to the light mm-hmm. you want coming to your eyes. So binoculars that have smaller lenses and they're more compact and portable are, are going to be great. They'll probably be a little bit less light coming through to you. And so for me, the 8x42, that hits the Goldilocks zone. It's also a nice price point zone, too, for um, novice birders. I've gotten the advice before that said, pick the binoculars that you like in your in your midpoint zone and go one step higher and make that decision Mm. and buy that pair because typically you'll get running with that first pair and just wish, Oh, I I love this. I wish I just got that one pair one step above. Just, just get that at the beginning Mm -hmm. and you'll be good. But besides binoculars, uh, the only other tool that I would really highly suggest for that novice birder is a tool you probably already have in your pocket and it's your cell phone. And there's an app that almost anyone who is sharing their tips and tricks for birders will recommend this app. It's called the Merlin Bird ID app, and it's from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. I can't rave about this app highly enough. It's free, and anyone can download it to any smart device. It's spectacular for identifying birds. Even if you just caught a quick glance through your binoculars, essentially the app will ask you to answer a few qualifying questions, like was the bird flying? Was it perched in a tree? What was its size in relation to a robin or a goose? And maybe can you describe up to three colors that you notice on that bird? And this basic information, it allows the app to execute this kind of magical avian digital dichotomous key, like in the background of this app. And then it presents to you these options that may just be your bird. And I've learned countless new birds as an amateur birder with this app. And the fact that it's also free and available to everyone just gives it high marks for me in my book. Mm-hmm. And really, after that, yeah, you just have to get out there. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for that. So that's the Merlin Bird ID app. And, and uh, we'll put links up to where we can find it. Do I have that right? The Merlin Bird ID yeah. app? Yeah. Yep. Okay, good. Well, we're going to mm-hmm. put links up to where our audience can find out more information. Of course, we'll put links up to where our audience can find out more information about Leanna Vitale's upcoming presentation 
at Smithsonian Associates. It's really right around the corner, October 21st. Um, you'll be able to register there for the Zoom presentation from Vienna Vitale. We're going to listen to another call here. I want to listen to the Sora Rail. You've provided these calls for us and we really appreciate it. So let's listen to the Sora Rail and then tell us a little bit about the research that goes on at Jug Bay. I just, that, that rail is beautiful, almost like a wren, a little bit, just a trill. Right, right. And, yeah, and they call it a whinny for the Sora rail. And okay. uh, any kind of bird that gets a whinny for a call, um, get, you know, is definitely good in my book. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So let me tell you a little bit about the research, and then I'll, I'll kind of show you how that Sora rail fits in mm-hmm. to the story. And it's probably easier for me to tell you the bird research that we're not doing. Um, rather than what we are doing, as it seems that we do have our hands in a little bit of everything. But starting small and kind of going bigger, we have several nest box monitoring projects that sunrise and sunset throughout the year. They include eastern bluebird nest box monitoring, prothonotary warblers, American wood ducks. And this involves uh, keeping track on these nest boxes that we have throughout the sanctuary and also even into the marsh. And you're looking for the health of the population, how many of the Eggs are successfully turned into hatchlings that are successfully pledging. And it's a great way to get citizen scientists and community scientists involved in these kinds of projects. We also have a passive bird survey. It's called the Secretive Marsh Bird Survey. And you kind of like feel a little special if you're part of a secretive survey. Mm-hmm. And we're on the river very early, very, very early in the morning. And we're listening and we're logging marsh bird calls. So we'll play out a call similar to that Sora call that we heard out into the marsh and then we'll stay dead silent for a minute afterwards and see what birds call back to us. Our winter water bird survey, this is also a passive survey, and this is something that has been occurring at the sanctuary bi-weekly, so every other Thursday morning from November to March for 30 years here. And it includes visual observations of both marsh bird species richness and also abundance during the winter months. So we're not just looking to capture data on the diversity of birds that we have here, but also the numbers. And on a given day, it's not improbable to see a thousand red-winged blackbirds or 200 tundra swan. These are things that have happened over the course of the 30 years of the survey and, and just really amazing moments to witness. We have several bird banding studies. We have uh, one called MAPS. It stands for Monitoring Avian Productivity and Survivorship. And this has been operating every spring and summer also for 30 years. It's the longest continuous running MAPS station, in uh, second longest, excuse me, in America. And it attempts to collect data on uh, populations and longevity records on songbirds like red-eyed vireos, ovenbirds, and every now and then we even catch a pileated woodpecker hmm. in the nets as well. Uh, everyone loves owls. So mm-hmm. <laughs> they're an easy bird to share that we're doing research about. Hmm. So what owls, they're just these tiny, adorable, they almost look animatronic. Mm-hmm. You see them up close. They're <laughs> just amazing. And barn owls, these are two species that we look to band each in their respective seasons each year. And you can't really visit Jug Bay during the months of March through August without hearing or seeing our osprey. 
And we've been banding Osprey here for about 20 years as well, working in partnership with the Protection River Park across the river, who has been the lead on the Osprey banding effort for these last 20 years. Hmm. And bird banding really yields amazing data on species longevity and migration patterns. It is a more invasive process when you're looking at birds. You know, they're very up close. They're in your hand. You're banding them. But there's incredible power in the data that you can receive from where these birds are migrating to what are they surviving? What are they, what obstacles can they not overcome? And there's no better example to discuss the power of, of bird banding, I think, in conservation than with our partners across the river at Patuxent River Park who have been studying that SORA rail that we heard at the beginning of this mm-hmm. question. They've been studying it for 90, since the 1990s, and the results of the data have just yielded really fascinating things. It's, if Disney illustrators were to, to draw a marsh bird, they would draw a sora rail. Mm-hmm. It's got big white and brown eyes, young, long yellow legs. It's incredibly precious. And they migrate incredible distances. They cross North America twice a year. It's a tiny bird that weighs 2.6 ounces. And that weight is equivalent to about holding one and a half golf balls in your hand. Mm-hmm. Yet they travel 6,000 miles um, almost twice a year passing through Jug Bay between August and October, and they time their arrival perfectly with the maturing of wild rice. This is a uh, extremely important marsh plant that we have. Every acre of wild rice growing in the marsh will drop about a ton of wild rice seed. And that seed is directly valuable and important to the sore rails. They kind of stop at Jug Bay as like a midpoint in their road trip, and they fatten up on that seed and continue on their way down. Uh, and it was actually a harbinger of information for Native peoples, the Ojibwe people who lived here, um, and people of the Great Lakes region. Their culture had historic ties to wild rice, and they had a name for the Sora, and they called it Monomanakeshi, and that means the one who shows where the rice is ripe for harvesting. In the height of the season, we might have 4,000 Soras present here at Jug Bay in the fall and considered the greatest concentration in in the world of these species. And they were also hunted over the years. The hunting sport became really, really popular, and it attracted two U.S. presidents. Teddy Roosevelt and and Harry S. Truman actually hunted here at Jug Bay for Sora Rail. And believe it or not, the great Bambino himself, Babe Ruth, also was here hunting Sora Rails at their prime. Smithsonian has generously provided two images, one of the Sora Rail, which is beautiful, just as you described too. Perfect. It's a, it's a Disney, it's a Disney-like image. <laughs> and then the Mockingbird, we'll put those up onto the website. I, I love owls too. And, and it's such a, a wonderful resource at Jug Bay Wetland Sanctuary. Last question for you, because I, I, know, I know you're very busy, Leanna Vitale, and we just sure appreciate your time, but Maybe just give us briefly a rundown of some of the activities that might be available to, for our audience, uh, guided tours, um, what's going on during the fall. We're now in October here. Uh, what's coming up in winter, perhaps, and then uh, summer probably is a busy time. But what is it that you're doing there in terms of uh, kind of organized activities for guests? So we try to create a diversity of opportunities for engaging in nature that hopefully meets people coming from a wide spectrum of interest. So We certainly offer guided bird walks every month, and it's impossible to work on the river and not offer canoe and kayak trips. Mm. We offer those as well. In fact, tomorrow we have a canoe uh, river cleanup event, and and those are very popular. It's a great way to kind of get out into nature and and really experience it with a strong purpose, too, Mm -hmm. of of really improving this natural area that we have. 
I think some of our most popular guided tours revolve around our rich archaeological history. We have 10,000 years of proven American Indian habitation in and around the sanctuary lands. And it's not uncommon for archaeologists who work every summer along our different properties to uncover everything from 1,600 um, tobacco pipes to 8,000-year-old hand axes. It's incredibly diverse uh, human cultural heritage here. I think some of um, my favorite programs, though, step a little bit outside the box of what your typical nature park might offer. So twice annually, we host a Women on the Water program and it invites women of all ages and backgrounds to join for an afternoon paddling the river mm. with a gourmet lunch and capped with yoga. We've tried to do a, a similar Men of the Marsh program, but mm-hmm. we can't get the men to come together <laughs> and come out with us. So we'll have to maybe rebrand that a little bit. <laughs> um, we offer mindfulness hikes. These are guided but mostly silent hikes that we take our visitors to our favorite peaceful places in the sanctuary. Every fall um, on normal non-COVID years, we host a, a fundraiser called Taste of the Wild. And that's where we forage or we work with local hunters to offer foods from the sanctuary. So we have some non-resident Canada geese that are part of a hunting season. Uh, we do a deer management hunt that helps to keep our forests uh, healthy and strong and growing. We have a community garden, a two-acre community garden here on the property. And we also have a two-acre vineyard. And so in these events, we like to really celebrate the, the hyper-local part about what it means to be involved at Jug Bay Wetland Sanctuary. I think one of the, the silliest and maybe but one of the most rewarding programs we host <laughs> is Camp Pandion. And that's named for Pandion Heliatis. That's the scientific name for the osprey. Mm. And this is a summer camp for grown-ups. Picture full-grown adults thrashing through the marsh for capture the flag, pie-eating contest, tie-dyeing, <laughs> friendship bracelet. Now, it sounds silly, but oh, watching an adult yeah, yeah. who... Yeah, we're so scheduled and we're trying to accomplish what we need to do each day for ourselves, our family and friends, that it's a permission for 24 hours to leave your phones in your car Mm. and just be a wild child again. Let's see, in the spring and uh, late winter, we have a super science series. I imagine it might be digital this year, but um, in years past, we get together for giant soup potlucks and then listen to some latest, greatest science, both locally and nationally. And our forest preschool program uh, is a popular one for families looking to have a sensory experience for young, very, very young children looking to grow that relationship with nature at at a young age in a safe environment. Involves a lot of free, unstructured playtime in nature and role models uh, through naturalists and volunteers that can demonstrate what what a respectful relationship with nature looks like. Mm -hmm. And yeah, so we do, we try to kind of, we love our birds and we have plenty of bird programs, and, but we try to, we offer programs in different languages. We offer programs in French and in Spanish as well and, and really work to meet, to meet our, our visitors on any kind of level of interest they have. It is quite a facility, quite a uh, destination location just outside of D.C. really. The website is wonderful too, jugbay.org. We're going to put links up to where you can find out more information about jugbay.org including the monthly newsletter, which has all of the details that Leanna Vitali has been talking to us about. Of course, the presentation is coming up at Smithsonian Associates with Leanna Vitali. We'll have links to that and more. What a pleasure it's been to talk with you today, Leanna Vitali. I, as I say, I'm a huge fan. It's just been so nice to hear all of the wonderful things that you're doing 
please keep it up. And we're going to, you know, kind of post COVID, we're, we're going to definitely come back out. And um, my wife and I are going to come back out and attend a couple of these great events. I, I'd love to kind of march through the marsh with everybody and yes, <laughs> enjoy some you. wild child <laughs> times. Yes, absolutely. But Leanna Vitale, thank you so much for your time. Great work and, and just a wonderful presentation coming up. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Paul. Thank you to Leanna Vitale for joining me on today's show. Remember, Leanna Vitale will be presenting at Smithsonian Associates, and the title of her presentation is Birdwatching Stories from a Naturalist. Notes and details on the presentation will be available on our website and at the Smithsonian Associates website. You'll find links everywhere. My thanks to the Smithsonian team for their help with the show, and my thanks to you, our wonderful Not Old Better Show audience. Please Stay safe, everyone. Practice smart social distancing. And remember, talk about better. The Not Old Better Show. Thanks, everybody. 